The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. Bill Amadeo from um, McManus and Amadeo. And today we're talking about Bobby Reyes. I'm going to be real at people. This will probably be the most difficult live I've ever done. And I'm hoping that I do not get overly emotional on this one. I always said I didn't want to talk about this one. There's been um, two cases in my career I'm not overly comfortable talking about. One is Bobby. And the second is Eric Coleman. Uh, Eric was such a great day professionally, but the fact that Eric and Bobby are both gone now, it's both painful to discuss those things. And, you know, in this field, the Google hits and the Facebook searches and the money and the alleged power and all that, some things are bigger than you. And this was something that was way bigger than me. To make this a little lighter, I had a call from a client. And this kind of put things in perspective. I had a call from a client who was screaming, I need you to get to the jail. This guy's doing a short stint in jail for a long time in prison, and he said, I'm being mistreated in this jail. I need to know. So me, I'm like, I'm running down there. We're going to fix this. And his mistreatment was that the macaroni and cheese didn't have enough cheese, and the pudding didn't have enough pudding in it. You know, and it kind of brought a little humor to today. Because I'm like, look, I'm really sorry that the macaroni and cheese at that facility isn't what you expected, but... We all have bigger things to deal with, and he'll be out soon. And that was a good laugh, and I knew it was coming today. What was coming today was a discussion of Bobby. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes humor gets us through some difficult things. Last night, um, Sarah Jones, Bobby's mom, we were um, DMing each other on Facebook, And Sarah, I know you're going through hell right now, and I'm really sorry. I know it's two years, and the pain, I know it comes and goes, but I can't imagine what you and Jose have to endure on a daily basis. But you guys are tough. You're great parents. You have each other. I'll always have your back for what it's worth. And I'm really sorry with the content we're going to provide, as opposed to giving a Facebook Live about how Bobby's doing that he's back in high school, because I think that's what should have happened here. And I'm going to do my do my best not to um, attack U of M too much, but I'm sure it's going to come out. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. So let me tell you about the beginning. I was just coming off a trial. And I remember I hadn't had a day off in like 42 days. Remember the number exactly. 
and I was watching um, Sunday Night Football, and a former client texted me that she was a relative of Bobby Reyes, and what do I think about the situation? And at this point, I didn't know who Bobby Reyes was. I was in my own little world, my creme defense world, you know, and I remember I was going to take that Monday off. I was pretty pumped up about that. It was like the first day off in a long time. I'm going to hit the gym. I'm going to watch some old school wrestling and look at to buy some old baseball cards and just do some bullshit to tune out from the world. And I went to the Save Bobby website. And it was horrifying what I saw. And I contacted Sarah. And Sarah is the mother. Jose is the father of Bobby. And they had a lawyer, and I was glad about that, because I don't know probate law. And I talked to them, and they told me that they had to be at the 15th District Court the next day to be before Judge Schwartz. So, here's where concern started to kick in for me. Judge Schwartz, he's retired now, but he's the Circuit Court Judge, one of the Circuit Court Judges in Washington. And the 15th district, while two blocks away, is a district court. So a probate matter would not be held in district court. So my first fear here is that their lawyer told them to go to the wrong location. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm going to show up 8 o'clock Monday morning. And I'm going to take you to Judge Schwartz's chambers. And tell your lawyer we'll all meet there. And, you know... My whole agenda here at this point is to show Sarah Lynn Jones where to go in court. And I'm there early. And I'm thinking I'm going to be in and out in like 20 minutes. I'm going to show Sarah where to go. I'll shake their lawyer's hand. And I'll go home. I'll go back to sleep. And I'm texting Matt about it, right? And Matt was Matt's text to me was, uh-oh. And I'm like, what's up? He goes, you're going to end up taking this case. And I'm like, no, nah, I don't do probate. He goes, Bill, trust me. Somehow, some way, you're going to end up taking this case. I'm like, no, I'm just going to show them where to go. So I'm texting Sarah. And security, of course, because <laughs> security's got a tough job, but they wouldn't let this poor woman in with her phone because she's not a lawyer. You know, and she's crying, you know, my son's dying, I need to get up there, her lawyer's not there. She's texting me, and I ran downstairs, I took her phone, pretended it was my phone, we went through, and then Sarah had her phone. And me and Sarah started connecting a little bit there. So I'm waiting on her lawyer, her lawyer gets there, and there's some members of the media, and one of the members of the media, Kim Russell's amazing. And then there's somebody else who I think is garbage. But the garbage journalist, not Kim, because Kim's great, was saying, are you the attorney for the family? And I said, no, this individual's the attorney for the family. She was, okay, please get out of my way. <laughs> Sorry to be in the way. So I'm sitting there and I'm talking to like friends and family. And, you know, I don't really know what's going on. I know there's a kid that's sick at the University of Michigan. And if I could help Sarah Jones find the right court and take the lawyer there, cool. 
U of M, one of their lawyers was there, and they're talking to me, telling me how the case was filed incorrectly. Well, I don't even know what case we're talking about at this point. And Judge Schwartz had a murder case that day. So another judge signed a stay to give Bobby a little bit more time. And the lawyer that was there, they got her press. They did their thing. I hugged Sarah goodbye, told it was nice meeting her, and I went home. I did say to Sarah, um, if you need anything, let me know. And I went back to the office. And I told Matt what happened, and that was that. Did your good deed of the day. Hope things work out for this family. Well, it was later that day that Sarah was calling me. That her lawyer was not getting back to her. And this wasn't a situation where you could just blow off a client. You know, this was a dire situation. We learn that there's this kid that's fighting for his life at the University of Michigan. And the University of Michigan wants to take him off life support. And obviously... Sarah and Jose want to fight for their child, which they have every right to do, in my opinion. We'll get to that later. And their lawyer's not getting back to them. So I said, well, look, I'll call the lawyer. They'll get back to me. I called a lawyer, and the lawyer told me, University of Michigan has several lawyers on this case. This is too much pressure for me. I want out. She goes, you take it. Okay, I don't know probate. I don't know what to do. I don't want to leave this family hanging. The lawyer who they paid something to, by the way, and who sent them a bill afterwards. <laughs> That's another f***ing story. Um, basically quit. I have no idea what to do in this situation. So I start calling every probate lawyer I could think of at that time. I know a lot more today. And the basic answers I got from the probate attorneys were, well, we're not going to go against U of M, or this is too much media, we don't want to deal with this, and listen, Bill, it's best you just walk away from this case. Um, they can't afford to pay you your fees anyway. And I'm like, well, hold on, wait. I'm not trying to get money from these people. Their child's dying. Somebody with knowledge in the field, please help. Nobody what? So, I basically told Sarah and Jose, um, I don't really know probate, but I will try to help you. And admittedly, I didn't know what I was walking into. And what I walked into was a situation where I would never change the time I spent with them. But, um, it wasn't a traditional case. I went to the hospital. And I met with Jose, and I met with Sarah, and I hung out with Bobby. And my firm started filing motions and trying to learn things on the fly. And things weren't filed in the proper court by the previous attorney. And, you know, I, when I went to the hospital, um, U of M put me through, like, this security screen. And they bring you back to this room. And in this room, there's all these lawyers administrators and it's like a group of like 14 people or so and Sarah and me are in there and I'm looking at them and they're like ganging up on this woman and they're like giving her a lot of shit while her son's fighting for his life and I just started losing it 
you know, I don't know who you think you are, but we're here to fight. I want this kid to survive. And it was such a bizarre journey right there. And U of M, there's something in Ann Arbor, something in Washington County, that when you go against U of M, um, you're going against the Bible Belt, if you will. It just doesn't happen. And then the media's in my face. And I'm going to keep buying this child time. We got two agendas right now. Agenda one is Bobby may be able to fight out of this. Agenda two, let's get him to a hospital that gives him a chance. And it was weird with a lot of people at U of M, the administration. You know, they were talking about how there's posts on Facebook in the group. And, you know, it was a private group. So I said to one of them, how do you know what's going on on Bobby Reyes's Facebook page unless you catfish to get into the page? And now the Crim Law's coming out of me. The Atlantic City's coming out of me. The Jersey Kid's coming out. I'm getting pissed off. I saw a group of people fighting like hell to take this child off life support. And the law is gray, Okay. He's declared dead once, and the constitutional rights are out the window. And every state has a different version of this right-to-life type statute, okay? I'm not going to bore you with a law school lecture right now. But nobody knew what the hell was going on. Only thing I knew was I got to keep fighting to give this kid a chance to survive. U of M started hiring more lawyers. And here's this big-time firm, and they're calling me up, saying, well, we're on the case now. Okay, cool. And reporters are in my face. I remember this one reporter one night, I'm with Sarah outside, you know, and they said, are you intimidated of U of M's team of lawyers? And I responded, I'm a criminal lawyer to grew up in Atlantic City. Unless they have knives and guns, I'm okay. And there was this weird look. Am I supposed to be scared right now? Because U of M was spending an ungod amount of money to try to kill this child? F*** you! I started getting these calls. You know, and I'm filing motions, I'm arguing with these lawyers, I'm trying to buy time, we're trying to find different hospitals. Became this crazed team effort to try to save this child on one side, and this f***ed up opposing side trying to kill him. And, uh just getting it was getting really heated so we find him a hospital in Arizona and Arizona says they're going to take him and we're figuring out funding to fly this child out and the family out there and Arizona told U of M that they were going to take this kid I had the text messages saved. Sarah recorded the calls. And we're so... We're on top of the world. Bobby's got a chance to live. We're going to figure out how to help this family out financially to get them to Arizona. He's going to live. He's going to prove everybody wrong. You know, and we found experts that said he had a chance to live. In my argument, I'm not a probate guy, Okay. Not probably guy. Not then, not now. Here's what I know. If a child 
has a chance to survive. And his parents want to exhaust every option to give that child a chance to live. How the fuck is U of M not going to give them that opportunity? Billions of dollars pouring into that place. And to think that Bobby Reyes was just another bed they could put somebody else in. That was horrifying. And Arizona gave us hope we're going to do this. And I remember, um, I'm feeling really good about this, you know? Like, okay, I did something good. I accomplished this. Time to get back to work on Crim Law. Glad I could help out. Glad to play a small role in helping to save this kid's life. That's how I felt. Here's where things get really rough. I um was going to a funeral the day after the Arizona thing hit. And one of my professors from law school uh, passed away. I wasn't that close with him, but I felt I should attend. And I went there. And I stopped by to see Scott Grable in Lansing. You know, obviously at the funeral, the viewing actually was, I stopped in for the viewing we I wasn't checking my phone so I get out of the church I'm on my way to Scott's house I got a bunch of missed calls and a bunch of emails and I checked my emails and one of um, U of M's attorneys said Arizona revoked the option so we need to get the plug pulled now what? So I'm flying down the highway to get back to fucking Washington County to find park and get mopped. I'm running through. And you know me. Okay, suits on. Headphones are in there. I'm jumping through things, getting stopped by security. I get pulled back in that room again. You're not pulling the plug on this kid. Well, if you just sign this form, we could move on. This family could start healing. You know, you know what? This family will never f***ing heal from what U of M did. I'm like, we're not doing it. And I start filing emergency stays. And we don't know if U of M played a role in Arizona not taking Bobby. I don't know. I do know that people from Arizona threatened that they were going to report me to the ethics board. Because <laughs> I was screaming, how the hell could you give this family hope and take it away from them? Because if that's an ethics violation, then f disbar me today man you know jesus christ and i remember there's some people at u of m you need to act appropriately when you come to university of michigan F you acting appropriately would be giving that child a right to survive that's acting appropriately not looking at it like you're a fucking bean counter saying hey well Maybe his organs are worth X amount of dollars. Maybe we put somebody else in this bed. Maybe somebody who could private pay is more important to give our resources to than somebody who cannot private pay. Yeah, I f***ing said it. And I start getting calls from University of Michigan alumni telling me, Hey, Bill, look, you bought the kids some time. We get it. You're a great lawyer. We will give you a big time job. We will help you if you ever want to run for be a judge in Washington County. But if you keep fighting for this kid who they believed was dead, if you keep it up, 
We're going to make sure you're never a judge. And we're going to do what we can to hurt your career. I got to tell you guys, it's been two years. Career's doing pretty f***ing good, so I don't know who you called. But if there's a criminal defendant that doesn't want me as their lawyer, eh, you know, they deserve what happens to them. I don't really care if I burned a bridge at University of f***ing Michigan. So, we're fighting, we're fighting, we're fighting, and we um, end up in court. And court was, it was just surreal. And there's so many things I'm leaving out, okay? I'm trying to, I'm playing this thing in my mind, and I'm being completely truthful, but I'm also, uh, you know. We get to court. And I always get to court first. I'm always the first one in court. I think court was like 1.30 or something. So I get there like 1 o'clock. And Nick Sanderson meets me there. And Nick and I are walking in the circuit court. And we go into the courtroom. And here's a team of like 10 University of Michigan lawyers that are set up on the right side of the courtroom that were there long before us. And one of the clerks comes out, and she goes, I need the two main lawyers in the back now. And we're arguing, and Judge Schwartz, and I don't hold this against Judge Schwartz because he applied the law. I disagree with his opinion, but I don't blame him. I blame the lawyer more who didn't file in the right location, and uh, he told us, He's going to rule against us. And the University of Michigan lawyer goes, well, we don't need to make, we don't need to do a public argument. I'm like, fuck that. I said, judge, may be clear. I want to argue. You're telling me no now. Give me a chance. Give me a chance to convince you, please. And um, I fought like hell. And we lost. And, uh, I gotta tell you, they were rushing out of the courtroom to pull that kid off life support. It was so fucking unreal. And I was like in a frantic panic, like calling, um, like different hospitals and shit. And. I didn't know what to do at that point. We tried to file the court of claims. Court of claims that they wouldn't accept our filing, which was, um, oh, I don't know what the fuck that was, but they wouldn't accept filing. I don't know if somebody from U of M called. I don't know. And I called the lawyer to tell what was going on, and the lawyer told me, one of the lawyers told me, he's gone. And when I learned that he died, the first time I learned that he died, I just went to my office and didn't know what to do. What do I say to Sarah and Jose? I mean, they're there. I guess I'm going to run back to Mott right now. And Bobby Schindler was there, who's like one of the top pro-life guys in the country. That's Terry Schiavo's brother. And Bobby Schindler was threatened to be arrested. They wanted him gone. 
I didn't know. And then Jose calls me, the father, and he's like, no, he's not dead yet. So the lawyers lied to me. I'm back at the office trying to file some emergency motions and make some last-minute calls. One of the lawyers told me the kid was dead, and he wasn't dead. So now I'm thinking, okay, now, now we got hope again. Let's go. Let's go. Let's do something. I don't know what I'm fucking doing. I remember something productive was happening, but I don't know. And then, um... Then I get a call um, from Jose. I get a call from Jose. And he's crying on the phone, saying they're killing him right now. I remember saying something to him. I remember what I said at that point. And Bobby was gone. And I uh I put my headphones on and I went outside for a walk. And as I went outside for a walk, there was a journalist seated in the lobby of our firm who wanted a comment. And all I could say was, he's gone. And that was it. And that's how the death of Bobby Reyes occurred. <sighs> I'm glad that um, I bought the family two weeks, but I didn't win. I didn't come through for them. Now, it's far and away the greatest loss of my career. And I wish to God I could have gotten involved earlier or I could have said some magic words. I wish I could have done something to be there for Sarah and Jose more than I was. But I like to think that it was Bobby's time. But I'm always going to wonder if it was. And the Sarah and Jose I love you guys. And I know this has been a rough two years. And um I wish I could do something more for you guys. I wish we could have won. But uh you know. I didn't want to do this one today.
because I really haven't broke down in a long time. And my fear in doing this one was I was going to relive some of this stuff. And guys, I know you relive it every day. So I know that that may come off as selfish, but I just, uh, I don't know. And hopefully we get Bobby's Law. Hopefully parents have a right to keep their child alive. Hopefully U of M does the right thing when another child's in that situation. And I'm sure if that child was a member of the Dexter Ann Arbor community, he would have been given more of a chance. The kid had an asthma attack and it was a complete tragedy. And all this family wanted to do was do everything in their power to make this child have a life. And you brought in a team of lawyers, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars because you felt it was unethical for this child to keep fighting for his life. That's fucked up. That's just fucked up. So if I never become a Washtenaw County judge, and if I never have any connection to U of M, I really could care less. I did what I thought was right, and I feel I came up short, and I am so sorry I could not deliver a victory. But, um, I what I do take pride in is I know I was on the right side of this issue. Nobody's ever going to tell me that I was not on the right side of this issue. You know, I don't have children at this point. My Max was like a child to me, and Charlie was. And I've had a lot, put a lot of animals to sleep over the years, unfortunately. Um, but Max was like 15, 16 years old. He was a rescue dog. And at the end, what I always think about, I started making like big money towards the end of Max's life. So there was an experimental surgery. I got it, you know? Anything to keep Maxie alive. And Max was playing and eating and happy. And then one day, Max basically told me, you know, Dad, it's time to go. I've had enough. And I knew at that point I had to put Max to sleep. And it was... That dog has been with me through so much shit, man. He's seen me poor. He's seen me with money. He's seen me as a nobody. He's seen me as a big shot. He didn't give a fuck what I was. He just wanted my love and attention. And I was a... We were bonded, man. But Max told me, the look in his face, it's time to go. Sarah and Jose never got that opportunity. Bobby never had any say in this. An asthma attack... And financial records made a decision to not give that child an opportunity to live. And that's unforgivable. And that's, um, I guess that's all I have to say on this topic right now.
the jail visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. This is the sixth turn at Crowley. I reviewed a little bit about this before I came on air today. Some people have taken a lot of interest in these stories, but surprised the hell out of me. But as I was reviewing it, I think one of the allures of these stories is that it's not just about law school or about failures. It's like combining life. And when I looked at the sixth term at Cooley, some old blogs I did, some old notes from back in the day, and it was weird how, you know, life was like this collision course. This term, I think, uh, my childhood, and some things that happened in childhood really played, like, this vital role in the term. It was different based on that. So let's start with the classes. We had Wills with Emily Harbath. That's actually Wills Estates and Trust. That is a really critical course for those of you that want to do probate law. For the law students out there to ask me questions, I think um, Emily Horvath's class was excellent. She really broke things down in a manageable light. And with wills, estates, and trust, you know, that's a course that could probably be taught three terms instead of one. But she did a good job with it. And it really broke things down. What's required for a will in Michigan? How you do an estate? How you do a trust? And generally, this is a topic that's an essay on the Michigan bar exam as well. So it was a pretty valuable course. Good professor. Emily Horvath is now one of the leaders of bar prep at Cooley. And, you know, for those of you that know, Cooley and I aren't on the best of terms. We'll talk about that later. I think she's a good professor. Good softball player, too. Uh, professional responsibility with Peter Kempel. Kempel was a strange guy. This term, I had three courses on a Friday, and I would just, you know, study the rest of the week really hard, and I was working a part-time job as a journalist. Kempel's course was Friday night, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Uh, I was in there with Brian Largy, who's a close friend of mine, he's like a brother of me, mine. And Brian Largy on a Friday night course at Cooley, that was better than most things on reality TV because Brian was kind of burned out at that point. I will say that Professor Kempel was a very unique individual. And I don't think there were a lot of things you particularly learned in that course, but Kempel told me there's three things that a client wants, and these are things that stuck with me throughout my career. One... They want to win their case. Number two, they want to have their voice heard. And number three, they want to get this over with. Think about that. You have a case, right? You want to win. You want to win badly. Your client wants to express their thoughts. And you really do want to get it over with. Whether it's criminal or civil litigation, you know, closure is a big thing. And I think cases in some ways are like relationships. And people say I'm crazy if I say that. But 
you know, there is a connection to the client. And then when the case is over, it's like the end of the relationship. And depending how the case went, it could be completely exhausting. And you get lost in that case. If somebody has a loved one who's facing 25 to life, you know, you feel that like you're facing 25 to life. At least if you're good and care, you do. You know, and, you know, to be a really diligent lawyer, there's going to be boundaries that sometimes get blurred. Because you may care so much for that case that you could lose sight of things. When you're juggling cases in different counties, you know, it gets complicated at times. I've never given less than 110% on a case. And while that may make me good at what I do, it also is emotionally exhausting. But that's what it takes to really be unique in this field. And I always thought back to what Professor Campbell said. Client wants to win. Client wants to have their voice heard. Client wants to shit over with. That was more valuable than the 14 weeks in the final I had in his course. That little tidbit of information late on a Friday night was essential. And it's something to live by. Then we had tax with Dan Schaefer. You know, and with Dan Schaefer, he was a cool guy. I had this major fear of math, and I think most people in law, you know, math was like our enemy at some point along the way. And Cooley really pushed their LLM program, so tax was a required course. Tax is not on the bar exam. So it was frustrating at first. I didn't want to do tax. I have so many things going on, but I'm going to take this tax course because I have to to be eligible to take the bar. Okay. And I met with Schaefer, and really good guy. Uh, like kind exchanges and all sorts of stuff like that. I don't remember any of it today because I didn't do tax law, but really good professor. And I was going to his office one day, and he said something which was pretty profound. I was stressed out, and it was a Thursday night. I'm in his office. And he said, Bill, you're as smart as anyone. You're more hardworking than anyone, but you are disorganized. And disorganization could be your downfall. You know, and it was really cool hearing that I was as smart as anybody out there and probably a harder worker than anybody, but the organization has always been a problem. And he hit it spot on. But hearing that from someone, you're hearing the two positives with the one negative connotation. You know, it was cool. And it kind of gave you a little search. I'll get through tax. Tax and secure transactions are two courses that have mathematical components. Tax more than secured. But you need to do some basic math. You need to learn formulas. And it was like having like flashbacks to Algebra 1. It wasn't a good time at first, but meeting with Schaefer regularly really made things, really brought things together. So the professors that term were pretty good. What was happening at this point was you're in your sixth term, and in your sixth term, the bar is a year away. And one thing Emily Horvath used to tell us in course, in a class, first term, they scare you to death. Second year, they work you to death. 
and the third year they bore you to death. What happens after that third year, though? You know, it's time for the bar exam. So you are in scoring position at this point, okay? To use the baseball analogy, you're between second and third, and you're taking off because the bar is going to happen within a year. You know, and you go back to Jersey, and, you know, mom's really sick. Like, she wasn't going to live much longer, and that was becoming more and more apparent. And you didn't know if you had to take a term off to take care of mom. The doctor said there wasn't much you could do. Um, she had her good days, she had her bad days, like the onion was peeling just how sick mom was. And it was, it was just kind of surreal. You know, you know your mom's going to die. It's going to happen. And law school's not going to stop. And do I take a term off? What if she lives another year? What do I do? Financial aid's there, like. It was the situation. Aunt Mare, and Aunt Mare was always like my mom, and mom was like my big sister. Aunt Mare was a rack, and she's just turning to me like, what do we do in this situation? You know, and I, I thought back to a lot. I spent as much time with mom as I could. And I thought back to a lot of times when I was in the hospital as a kid. And things started really, when I say they came full circle, they really did. And I'll tell a quick story about this. In 1989, I was a kid in the hospital, and I had this real bad, um, there was like this parasite in my stomach, and I was supposed to die. And I remember being a child and telling Aunt Mary and Mom, look, I'm ready to die. I just, I was worried about how Aunt Mary and Mom would react to my death, because I was on borrowed time, and Children's Hospital in Philadelphia saved my life. There's no question about that. But um, there were three kids in the hospital room with me. Damon, Donald, and Eric. Whew. Yeah. Damon and Donald has sickle cell anemia. And they weren't long for this world. And Eric had cancer. And I'm in this child's wing. And, you know, Damon and Donald died not long after... Eric, I kind of kept tabs on him. And as mom was dying, I'm having these flashbacks of these kids. And, you know, Eric kind of beat the odds a little bit, but he would die term break. Uh, my sixth term from law school. And that was heart-wrenching, you know. What I remember with those kids was we're in Children's Hospital... And, you know, you got four kids that potentially are going to die. And mom would come up to see me and stuff. And it was just a rough time. But I connected with them a lot. I felt in some ways I connected with them for life, even though life wouldn't be that long. And September 24th, 1989. And for those of you that know me, usually sports has always played a vital role in my life. Failed athlete, etc. And we're in Children's Hospital. September 24th, 1989. And the Eagles are playing the 49ers. And some of you will know this game. The Eagles destroyed Joe Montana and the 49ers. They were the defending champs. 
And it was the first year that George Seifert was their coach. And Buddy Ryan's Eagles, we are the it team. You know, we're going to do it now. The Niners were teams the 80s. The Eagles are going to be the team of the 90s. And in the first half, we kicked Joe Montana's ass. We sacked him six times. And we're up 21 to 10 in the fourth quarter. And the four of us, Damon, Donald, Eric, and me, were watching this game. And I'll tell you, for those three hours, man, we were all healthy. And we're watching this game, and like, the Eagles are going to win. Holy shit. We're going to beat the Niners. And Joe Montana, man, out of nowhere, had one of the greatest comebacks ever. And the Niners won 38-28. to And we're all talking shit, you know, in our room, these four sick kids. And, you know, it was weird that day because we were disappointed our Eagles lost, right? But as we're talking, you know, it was like Joe Montana had no chance to win this game. None. In the second half, the 49ers and their offensive coordinator, Mike Holmgren, they ran um, four receivers, and he, they figured, let's give Montana some space. And Montana was brutalized that day, right? But he came back and he won. And I kind of thought, like, that was a sign we were all going to survive. Like, no matter how bad the chips were down, Joe Montana's victory over our beloved Eagles was a sign we were going to f***ing beat those odds and get out of Children's Hospital. And unfortunately, only two of us did... And then Eric died during that sixth term. And that just felt like a little tiny piece of me died. And I knew mom's death was coming. And I'm juggling law school, you know. I'm trying to pay off the house in Ventnor for Aunt Mary and mom. While I'm taking a full term at Cooley. And it was, it was really, you know, it's like you're living in two worlds. And that's something I deal with every day. Sometimes today, I think I'm back in Atlantic City, and I am that poor kid, and it comes out in court sometimes, like, ferociously, but it is f***ing exhausting. And Eric's death was bizarre, and it was kind of a metaphor for life, though. We enjoyed those three hours, man. We were healthy for those three hours. And I'm the one that survived of the four. And... I think I've always been defined as a survivor, but being a survivor is not always enjoyable. But I always remember that game, and what I took from that game meant so much to me. Whenever the chips have been down in court, whenever anything has been sacked against me, you're poor, you're this, you're that, Everything I've overcome, I think back to that game when Joe Montana was down and brutalized. At the end of the game, he throws this pass to Jerry Rice, right, for the last touchdown. And it was like, it was almost like, I'm Joe Montana and you're not. Fuck you. You know, and the fact that they won by 10 points that day, that was just amazing. And the, the memory I'll have with those kids was, you know. So this term of law school, and I'm, I'm a Philadelphia kid, okay? Grew up in Atlantic City, went to Eagles games my whole life. 
went to my first Lions preseason game. And that was six terminal school. And comparing an Eagles game to a Lions game is like comparing the dead of winter in Michigan to a tropical May day in Florida. At Eagles games, if you wear opponents' jerseys, you might have to fight. One of the first Eagles games I went to was when Michael Irvin almost died on the field and fans were cheering. When Michael Irvin came into town with the Cowboys, Eagle fans wrapped up like baking soda and threw threw it at him because he was a coke addict for a short period of time. Lions games... I've seen more confrontations in church services than I have in a Lions game. It is a very quiet, very subdued thing. Usually the fans expect to lose. Even when we were bad in Philly, we expected to win. And when we didn't, we were pissed off. The Philadelphia sports fan is a different animal. And six turn went to my first Lions game here. and It's okay, but it wasn't what I was used to. You know, and as far as New Jersey went, at this time in life, Eric just died. Mom's dying. I kind of really reconnected with the church for a while, which I'm not connected to the church today. Um, And I went to go talk to Father Sullivan about it. And I told Sullivan, who was my childhood pastor, who I defended, and that's a story that many of you know. I said, I don't know. I said, you know, mom's dying and Eric died. I explained the story to him as I'm buying him dinner on my term break. And he said to me, well, you know, people die. That kid, you know, he was sick for a long time. What'd you expect? You know, and this was like a man of God saying this. And it was really... (laughs) God, it's amazing how people can be so focused on themselves. You know, when somebody calls you to talk, whether that you care about that person or not, you should take a few minutes. No matter how busy I am, if somebody needs to talk, I'm going to make time because you just never know what's going on inside someone's head. That conversation with them for 10 minutes or whatever could save them or could save somebody else you don't know. So if somebody calls you in need, I would recommend taking the call. I was in need. I tried to talk to Father Sullivan. He blew me off. Like, okay, I'll just throw myself into my work. It was very surreal, you know, six term had so much death going on. I guess the biggest thing I'll take from that term is going back to that game. And guys, I know some of you I'm close with have gone through a lot lately. Life sucks sometimes. We got to fight through. But I always think of Damon, Donald, and Eric. And the beauty of sports is, no matter how sick we are, what's going on, sports can be our escape. Those kids were healthy during that game. And watching Joe Montana come back, even though it was against our beloved birds, the game's never over until there's no time left on the clock. And if you look up that game, just watch Montana. Watch the way people came together. Watch the way the Niners didn't throw in the tail. You know what? It was the third game of the season. They were 2-0. They're on the road. They're getting their ass kicked. It would have been real easy to just say the hell with this. 
so what? We're two and one. Let's just go fight next week. They didn't do that. They fought like hell. And for a minute, I really felt that was a sign that all four of the kids in that hospital bed were going to make it out. At the very least, there was some peace in those three hours. At the very most, it gave us all hope. And sometimes hope's a big thing. When people ask me, um, coming full circle, why I got so deeply involved with the Bobby Reyes case and how that whole thing went down, I kind of felt like, in some ways, it was bringing me back to Damon, Donald, and Eric. And I thought about them so much. I hadn't thought about Damon, Donald, and Eric in a while when I got involved in Bobby's case, but I kind of relived that during that couple weeks. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Look, I'm really sorry that the macaroni and cheese at that facility isn't what you expected. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.